Hello, I'm James Hurst and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, the West's military intervention in Afghanistan comes to an end. Some paid a much higher price than I did, in fact, unquestionably higher price than I did. And so leaving it like this really does feel, well, like defeat. A former head of the army tells us what happened when he warned the campaign was going wrong. We were doing the heavy lifting and the fighting of the dying, while um, normal business was being resumed elsewhere in the Ministry of Defence. It was um, it was very frustrating. We'll get the latest from Kabul as the last foreign troops depart. There is a, a palpable panic, fear, uncertainty. And we return to Royal Wooten Bassett, where the lives lost in Afghanistan were honoured. Time is a healer although there are specific incidents that will never leave me. It has been described as the Forever War, a conflict stretching back close to 20 years. In that time, it has dominated much of our conversation here on SITREP, but now the Western military intervention in Afghanistan really is over. Two months ahead of President Biden's schedule, the US completed its withdrawal, with Britain and other nations following the American timetable. The Prime Minister told MPs Afghanistan is in a better place than it was and that NATO forces had to leave one day. We must be realistic about our ability alone to influence the course of events. It will take combined efforts of many nations, including Afghanistan's neighbours, to help the Afghan people to build their future. But the threat that brought us to Afghanistan in the first place has been greatly diminished by the valour and by the sacrifice of the armed forces of Britain and many other countries. We are safer because of everything they did. Today, we will explore the last two decades in Afghanistan. What happened, what went wrong, and what impact it might have in the future. But let's start at the beginning. As Paul Osborne explains, the West's initial objectives were met in just a matter of weeks. Soon after, though, the problems began. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. October 2001. Addressing a nation wounded by 9-11, President George W. Bush sets the terms for America's operation in Afghanistan. Your mission is defined. Your objectives are clear. Your goal is just. Alongside the U.S., British forces join the fight. We know that sometimes, to safeguard peace, we have to fight. So we will act. And our determination in acting is total. We will not let up or rest until our objectives are met in full. There was global outrage in the wake of 9-11, and former head of MI6, Sir Alex Younger, says that extended to broad support for the mission in Afghanistan. It was a visceral assault on, our, on the fabric of our societies. It was designed to shock, and it had that intent. It took just a few weeks to defeat the Taliban, but the group had not been obliterated. Its members melted into the background, slipping into local communities and waiting. In 2003, the West went to war again, this time in Iraq, and attention drifted from Afghanistan. A few years later, violence erupted again and casualties started to rise. For British forces, the tough task of controlling Helmand province. President Obama ordered a surge of troops and by 2011, around 140,000 from dozens of countries were involved in the fight. 
But building a stable Afghanistan was proving to be a tricky task, and NATO wanted Afghan forces to take the lead on security. Former Afghan President Hamid Karzai. The entire international community backed the presence of the United States in NATO in Afghanistan in the name of the fight against terrorism. But it was during their presence here, under their watch, that ISIS emerged in Afghanistan. How do they explain that? UK combat operations ended in 2014, and the US aimed to get most of its forces out by 2016. It was around this time the Taliban started to make significant gains. Donald Trump's election then changed the dynamic. America wanted out. It would sign a deal with the Taliban. On paper, the militants continue to negotiate with Afghanistan's government. But Taliban commander Saeed Naqib vows they'll never cooperate. As a real Afghan, we would never do that because they are the people who are killing and kidnapping, who are thieves and who are corrupt. So we'll never work with them. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. As the last foreign troops leave, General Scott Miller, the last commander of the NATO force in Afghanistan, says there's only one way to secure the country's future. It is a, uh, a political settlement that brings peace to Afghanistan. And it's not just the last 20 years, it's really the last 42 years. It's something former MI6 boss Sir Alex Younger says Western leaders should have realised sooner. With hindsight, the aspiration to build a nation was not supported. <laughs> by a political plan and was in the event unrealistic. That's really clear. I think the West, for want of a better word, has learned some pretty hard lessons about the practicalities and the need to make some pretty hard compromises to recognize the politics of the, of the region. They are living so irresponsibly. After 20 years, they just said to the Taliban that it's OK, you can do whatever you do. Afghan MP Fazana Kushai. The women are finished here. It would be like a black days for Afghan women, not just women, all the people. There won't be any voice, any freedom, any life here. Now Afghanistan's future lies in the hands of its own people. But former President Hamid Karzai wonders if there was any point to the sacrifices of the last 20 years. In terms of the main US and allies objective, in which the Afghan people also shared, joined hands and into extremism, stability in Afghanistan, peace in our country. No, it has been disastrous for us. Former Afghan President Hamid Karzai ending Paul Osborne's look back at the last 20 years of the Afghan campaign. Well, we knew NATO troops were leaving, but the way it has happened has still perhaps brought some surprises. Afghan military commanders say the last American forces left their former headquarters Bagram Air Base in the dead of night without even telling them. That hasn't, though, surprised Lynn O'Donnell. She is a journalist and analyst for foreign policy based in Kabul and spoke to me from there. There is a, a palpable panic, fear, uncertainty. The government has no strategic communications plan. Uh, they were told by the international community, led by the Americans, uh, to clamp down on information fed to the public through the media and uh, the international community did the same. We've had absolutely no contact from the Americans, NATO, the Brits. There's been a silence that has fed into public panic. It does seem that as Western forces leave, there is a silence of, of anyone expressing confidence the Afghan forces that they've supported all this time 
will prevail. The current Afghan leaders in Kabul are only still in their jobs because of the the um, the Western, the US-led Western military intervention. I think we should remember that the combat missions uh, ceased at the end of 2014. So f- since since January the first, 2015, Afghan forces have been fighting, probably you know 95% of the. Uh, time and geography uh, by themselves. And I think that the the narrative that the Afghans can't do it has been rolled out by um, international uh, media, notably the Americans, who've been very supportive of the uh, departure policy, and a lot of um, armchair commentators who aren't here and haven't been here and haven't been on the ground for a long time and have also supported an anti-democratic notion of an interim government that gets rid of Ashraf Ghani and brings in the Taliban who haven't been elected and don't have any um, groundswell of support here. So you're right, um, there is a negative narrative and it is not supported by the vast majority of Afghan people. Lynn O'Donnell with The View from Kabul. Let's get the view now of an absolutely key British player in the last 20 years, Lord Dannett, who was Chief of the General Staff between 2006 and 2009, a period when the fighting in Afghanistan really intensified. He told me before that the situation deteriorated sharply when Western attention turned to Iraq. It became very easy for uh, Islamists, whether they were in Iraq or Afghanistan, or indeed elsewhere, to make the claim that our Judeo-Christian boots were stamping all over their Islamic soil. Had we continued to build up Afghanistan, helped Afghanistan develop 2002, 3, 4, 5, you know, we may not have had to launch the major operation, which we did in, in Iraq in 2006, and it wouldn't have been complicated by the deteriorating situation uh, in Iraq, again, which we saw about the same time. When you and other military leaders raised concerns about that, what reaction did you get? There was a pretty poor lack of understanding in the Ministry of Defence. I became Chief of General Staff in uh, August 2006 and wrote a lengthy letter to the then Secretary of State, uh, Des Brown, saying that, of course, the army would do whatever it was required to do by the government, but we had a whole range of issues that needed to be addressed. And the frustrating thing was that didn't seem to get much traction. The Ministry of Defence seemed to carry on with normal business, rather unaware that the army was leading our land forces in fighting two major uh, operations, while the rest of the military got on with its normal business. It was extraordinarily frustrating. We were doing the heavy lifting and the fighting of the dying, while um, normal business was being resumed elsewhere in the Ministry of Defence. It was um, it was very frustrating. Those leading Britain's armed forces at the moment, and indeed political leaders, it feels pretty clear that they would rather the UK wasn't withdrawing from, from Afghanistan, but they are going along with it, led by the Americans. Well, I think that's right. Um, I mean, there was no debate to be had. Once um, the Americans had decided that they were going to leave, it would not have been practical uh, for us to remain in Afghanistan when the American enablers uh, had themselves gone. I think the British would probably have liked to have stayed longer because and this gets to the crux of the issue. Do we or do we not try and help develop a more moderate, a better civil society in Afghanistan? In the end, have the Taliban won? And you know, given they are taking, uh, taking what one in five districts in Afghanistan in the space of two months, 
we have to ask what, what the point of the last 20 years is. Well, I think there are two principal points of the last 20 years. One is that we successfully swept out al-Qaeda and the Taliban 20 years ago. Then secondly, and this is the open question, we've put in front of the Afghan people the opportunity to live a better life or otherwise to fall back under the repressive regime of the Taliban. You know, you suggest the Taliban has won. At this stage, I, I wouldn't agree with that. In many country areas, the Taliban are prevailing, yes, but the provincial capitals, Kandahar, Masra Sharif, the national capital, Kabul, the elected government is still in control, and therefore there is the possibility of that better life continuing to be available for the majority of Afghan people. They've got to really want it. They've got to fight for it themselves. And of course, the other point to bear in mind is that now we have left the Taliban's battle cry of freeing their land from the foreign invaders. That's no longer valid. We've gone. So the Taliban have got to work out who they're fighting and for what. And frankly, it's quite difficult to dress it up any other way that they want to go back and impose the Sharia based regime that was previously in place 20 years ago. Question, do the Afghan people want that? That's the one they still got to answer for themselves. Former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett. Well, with us once again, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Mike, Lord Dannett there saying he pushed for more attention and commitment in Afghanistan, but described those conversations at the time as frustrating. Does that ring bells with you? Oh, yes, it certainly does. In a way, the, 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 the mega strategy of the West, the Western powers led by the United States behind this, was about as wrong as you could imagine, because, uh, you know, having done what they wanted to do in Afghanistan in late 2001, almost immediately attention then turned to Iraq by the middle of 2002. And from 2001 to 2003, 4, that was the time to win the political battle in Afghanistan, instead of which attention turned to a different campaign. And then having shifted to Iraq, which was going wrong by 2004, so all the attention was then on Iraq, and in 2006, just when Iraq needed all of our attention, we switched back to Afghanistan. It wasn't so much the, the lack of military hardware and troops, although that did affect Britain, but it didn't affect the Western allies so much as a whole. It was a lack of political attention. And the attention was always on the other operation when the previous operation needed it most. It was a, it was a lamentable example of grand strategy gone wrong. Afghanistan is, though, a different country. Figures, for example, for child mortality and maternal mortality are much smaller. There are more children in school. At the same time, we've got the Chief of Defence Staff, General Sinek Carter, saying the recent news from Afghanistan is, is pretty grim. It's plausible the Taliban could end up in control of the country. There is a legacy there. Do you think that legacy can be saved? Well, that's the issue. I mean, how? I mean, things are undoubtedly better in Afghanistan than they were prior to two thousand and one. Indeed, at any time in the last forty odd years. But the question is, how sustainable is it? And will the Taliban have learned, as they say they've learned, about more legitimate governing if they end up as part of some new joint government that might then be negotiated in the next uh, few months or within this year? Most people think that those gains are not really sustainable, but they may be. They may be. But certainly, you know, the issue of, of girls' education is really very important. And that, I think, will serve as the, the symbol of whether the other gains that Afghanistan 
Afghanistan has made economically and in terms of infrastructure and also in terms of some aspects of governability, whether they can be sustained. And if they can't, we're either looking at, a, at an Afghanistan which, um, like pre-2001, is dominated more or less completely by the Taliban, or an Afghanistan that simply splits up that splits into two or three parts according to its own tribal uh, DNA and that that will be a sort of different country again. This is Sitrep. Let's go back to Westminster where so many of the decisions about Afghanistan have been taken over the last 20 years. This week, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace faced criticism in the Commons over the withdrawal and he seemed to suggest he shares some of the anger being expressed by other MPs. I've placed on the record before, Mr Speaker, the, the fact that it was my view that the leaving by the United States left us in a very difficult position to continue that mission. It left many of us unable to continue that without a significant international uplift. That has not been forthcoming and therefore we are in a position where we too uh, are in that path of withdrawal. Well, among the concerned and critical at Westminster, the chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, as a reservist, he served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He helped set up Afghanistan's National Security Council. So as this withdrawal is completed, how does he feel? It's not so much the four years I served, so much as the friends I left behind. It was a very, very difficult time for all of us, but some paid a much higher price than I did. In fact, unquestionably higher price than I did. And so leaving it like this really does feel, well, like defeat. But the reality is this is about not just the way that NATO and the United States and Britain are perceived in Afghanistan, but also how we're perceived around the world. The reality is that if you're not willing to persist, if you're not willing to endure, uh, then you change the equation for allies and adversaries. Do you believe that's actually the fundamental strategic mistake here is actually about the optics of this? Oh, yes. No, this is this is not so much a military uh, decision as a political one. And the politics of it are clear and make a very clear statement to anybody watching. And, you know, everybody is watching. So it's it's perfectly clear what people will think. And it sounds from the words of the Defence Secretary in the House of Commons this week, like he might agree with you. But as he says, if the US decide to go, Britain and the rest of NATO had to go too. Well, I think the Defence Secretary has got a point. But it does make quite a clear statement when we don't have an independent capability beyond uh, that which the people of the United States and the person who sits in the White House allows us to. Taking back control doesn't mean much if your control has moved from Westminster to Washington. Let's not pretend this was a major troop commitment. The Americans had 2,500 troops there. The UK had 750. These were not troops who were doing combat operations. These were troops who were enabling. This is a misunderstanding of what we were doing. We were not, this wasn't the perpetual war. The war on terror ended for us about five years ago. What this was, was the ability to partner with allies around the world. Now, if we don't want to do that, fine, but then say that we're not in the alliance building business. We need to decide what kind of commitments we are seriously going to offer allies and make sure that we're capable of delivering on those because there are allies around the world now, and I can tell you because I've spoken to some of them, who are wondering what does our promise mean and what does our word mean? The Conservative MP and former soldier Tom Tugendhat. Let's pick up on that with Professor Michael Clark. He says it feels like a defeat, but more importantly to him, 
the optics of this, the the, the fact it, 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 he thinks it says Britain is not a reliable partner. Do you think he's right? Well, I think he may be, sadly. And one of the purposes of the integrated review was really to try to re-establish the idea that Britain had a meaningful capability that was military and lots of other things as well, and that we can deploy it uh, to some effect uh, to be a force for good around the world. But I have to say that we we haven't found, uh, as it were, a subject for that to, to demonstrate that so far. It's not that we're looking for a war or anything, but we are looking for ways of restoring the confidence that the world used to feel about our military. We, it used to be the sense that, you know, when the British military turn up things will happen things will will work they will do the job and tactically of course they did do the job both in Iraq and in Afghanistan but if the political strategy is not there then all that tactical superiority really counts for very little and that's the problem we're facing we don't look as if politically we count for very much in the world at the moment as the fighting intensified British casualties started to rise in total 457 British military personnel died. Many, many more suffered life-changing injuries. From 2007, those who had died were repatriated to RAF Lynham. The coffins passed through the small town of Wooden Bassett. Local members of the Royal British Legion decided to formally show their respects to the soldiers as they passed through the town. At times, more than a 1,000 people gathered in silence. In 2011, the town's name was changed to Royal Wooden Bassett in recognition of the role that it played in honouring the sacrifice of those hundreds of service personnel. Tom Blundell is the branch chairman of the Royal British Legion, Royal Wooden Bassett branch. The ex-mayor of Royal Wooden Bassett, who was a Legion member, he was stood by the side of the road waiting to cross and this hearse came past and it had a Union Jack on. Being an ex-RSM, uh, he knew what it meant and he thought he would pay his respects uh, by finding out when the next one was going to come and he would then inform the branch, Legion branch then, uh, what was happening and we would be able to come and stand with him and pay our respects as the hearse went through. And then people in the town said, oh, let us know when the next one, because we'd like to join you. So the townspeople then started to join us. Then it uh, was in the press. Other branches started to hear about it and wanted to join us. More branches joined us. People came from Scotland, Ireland. So it progressed worldwide. How did it feel being part of this group it was a sense of sadness that it happened and a sense of pride that we could actually welcome them back which is how we termed it they'd paid the final price and we were paying our respects to them and to what they had been through did you ever imagine that this would lead to be a focal point for the whole country to pay respects no that dawned on us slowly when we started to get people writing to the branch and of course to the town council uh, we had people from all over the world writing to us about it uh, america south america australia scotland wales and ireland and how did it feel to be a representative of the, of the UK in that way, almost. 
It was a sense of pride in our own country. It was also a sense of pride in our own servicemen. And we appreciated the fact that the country was now, because of this publicity that had been caused in Royal Wootton Bassett, the country was now getting behind our services. I hope there are enough people in this country uh, who appreciate the servicemen and what they do. I am hopeful that the country will back our forces if this sort of thing has to happen again. It is something that Wootton Bassett was honoured for by being renamed to Royal Wootton Bassett. But for you and your colleagues in the Legion, you've never really wanted any formal recognition or award for this, have you? No. No. We could not have anybody getting any recognition, if you like, so, uh, uh, medals, that sort of thing, because that wasn't what it was for. The focus from the Legion point of view and our point of view and the town's point of view was we were welcoming our comrades back into their country. It is a reminder this year because it's 10 years ago since they stopped the repats. Uh, time is a healer, although there are specific incidents from my uh, time uh, that will never leave me. One, a little boy being lifted up uh, to put a rose on the basically the coffin of his father, uh, then put, being put down on the floor in front of me, and he turned his back to the hearse, took his big glasses off. He was about nine years old, uh, and wiped tears from his eyes. Well, you can imagine what that did to me. Tom Blundell from the Royal British Legion in Wootton Bassett. Uh, Professor Michael Clark. And the Chief of Defence Staff says veterans of the campaign in Afghanistan can can hold their heads high. For all the criticisms you hear, what you do hear time and again seems to be that military personnel and the military machine did what was asked of them. And so they did. Yeah, so they did. Captain Harry Parker, as he was, was on the radio last week. You know, he's the son of Nick Parker, of course, who was deputy commander at the time in Afghanistan. And Harry was with the rifles and he was caught in an IED explosion, lost both his legs. He's, um, he's a very talented artist. Um, I've got one of his pictures on my wall. And Harry Parker said last week, without a hint of self-pity or sentimentality or anything like that, he said, we did what we were required to do. And he said, and remember that those of us in the forces then during Afghanistan said, we were the millennials. We were supposed to be the me, me, me generation. But he said what he observed most when he was there in, a, in something that has enriched his life for all that happened to him, he said what he noticed most was that those millennials did their jobs professionally, with dedication and determined, as they all were, to make a difference to what they saw in front of them. And by God, they did. 
Professor Michael Clark, thank you. Thank you to all our guests on the programme this week. Next week, we will report from the American destroyer that has joined the UK's carrier strike group. We'll also look at the potential use of artificial intelligence, AI, on the battlefield. Before we go, though, there is the small matter of a football match, the first major final for the England men's team in 55 years. It has been a nerve-wracking time for fans across the forces world, including the band of the Coldstream Guards, asked by the Prince of Wales to play a certain football anthem.